and welcome to episode 6 of KPRB Book Club for Introverts. Turn your volume down just a few notches and let's get started. I'm Lexi, host of the podcast. And I'm Mara, the other host here. Today we'll be discussing Sound, a memoir of hearing lost and found. And this book is by award-winning writer Bella Bathurst, and she shares the extraordinary true story of how she lost her hearing and eventually regained it, and what she learned from her 12 years of deafness. Diving into a wide range of exploration of science, silence, not science, and noise, she interviews psychologists, ear surgeons, and professors to uncover fascinating insights about the science of sound. But she also speaks with ordinary people who are deaf or have lost their hearing, including musicians, war veterans, factory workers, to offer a perspective, thought-provoking look at what sound means to us. If sight gives us the world, then hearing, or our ability to listen, gives us our connections with other people. But as the smart, funny, and profoundly honest examination reveals, our relationship with sound is both more personal and far more complex than we might expect. And a little bit about the author, Bella Bathurst. She is a writer and a photojournalist. She wrote four books, including The Lighthouse Stevenson's, which won a 1999 Somerset Mogham Award, The Wreckers, which became a BBC Time Watch documentary, and The Bicycle Book, which was shortlisted for the William Hill Sports Book of the Year in 2011. And when she's not writing, she designs and makes furniture that she sells. That's cool. Yeah, so she's kind of a big deal. Yeah. All four books that she has written have some kind of award or extra thing involved in them. Yeah. I would definitely read her other stuff based on how she wrote sound. Don't you think her name sounds like she should be a Harry Potter character? I got her author bio off of her website, and if you look at her author bio, her picture on there, she also she looks like she could be a professor at Hogwarts, too. The double consonant, the Bella Bathurst. <laughs> Yeah, that is like a J.K. Rowling staple. Yeah. Is that? Like alliteration. Yeah, all the extra characters. Not the main <laughs> ones, all the extra Bella characters. Bella the Hufflepuff. Yeah, of course. Okay, did you like this book? Would you recommend this to people? What What are you feeling about the sound? Um, I rated it three stars on Goodreads. Wow, that kind of surprises me. And. I think it was just because there was a lot of, I don't know, there's a lot of information. And as I was reviewing reviewing my notes earlier today, I was just like, there's just a lot of like micro stories that make up this book. So she does a series of interviews and then she provides like the science behind hearing. And I thought it was all very interesting. It just, to me, it was a lot of information. Yeah, you could kind of get lost in the facts. Yes. But I am thinking maybe I switched up. Maybe I should have rated the previous book, Optimistic Decade, three stars, and this one four stars. But 
you said you would read her other books, and I don't know if I would read her other books. I thought she was really good, and I don't, yeah, I don't like nonfiction. I don't necessarily choose nonfiction out of a stack of books. I'm not going to be, like, drawn to that. But I thought she was really good about telling facts through stories. So I learned a lot, but she didn't just, like, throw out this really dry information. A lot of it was told through a perspective of someone that was either born without hearing or gradually over time lost their hearing. So I thought she was good at that. Her writing structure was good. Yeah. I thought by the end of the book, I was just, I was kind of tired of reading it. That's what I mean. It was just like a lot of interviews. There were so many people and they were, I mean, I went like pages on pages without marking anything. And it's not that I didn't like it. It's just like, you know, how many notes can I take over these real life stories? Yeah. And her writing was interesting too, because she's British. Yeah. And so it was interesting to me to read a nonfiction memoir by a British woman. And I think that may be why I didn't rate it higher, because just the structure of writing is just a, just enough different from, like, American English that it was kind of hard to read at yeah. some points. Not the whole thing. And, like, there's craft. The craft of the story was well written. It was just the structure I wasn't used to. And I think she started off and she kind of told, she kind of like brought her own situation into it. And then she kind of trailed off. And then it was some other people, but she didn't really talk about her very much. And then she kind of trailed off from the other people and then brought it back to her. And I think she probably may have benefited from splitting it into two stories, two books. One that was actually just from her point of view. And then another one that was, well, you read what, what my experience is with sound. Here are other people's experiences with sound. So I think it was just so much information. Yes. Packed in. And it's not necessarily a, a super long book. Oh, no. Not at all. I mean, all. it's 200 pages. Like I learned more about how people who are hard, who are deaf or who have, have hearing loss, how their world looks. And I think that, again, just we talk about this almost every episode, but that empathy piece of I don't know what it's like, but now I know if I know someone is deaf or if I notice someone has hearing aids, the way that I talk and the way that I position my face towards them helps them out a lot. Yes. All right, should we just get started on this thing? Yes, yes. All right, you want to go ahead with the first part? Well, I hope your 25% is the same as my 25% because someone <clears throat> didn't put the page numbers in the document, so I had to do it all by myself. What? Yeah. No way. Yes. <sighs> oh, my bad. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, you could have told me that. Jeez, well, Louise. don't worry. There were about 200 pages, so I just kind of split it up into 50, 50, 50, 50. <laughs> yeah, I usually try to do the chapters that are closest to 50, but... Well, that's what I did. So my, my, my part one is chapters one through three. <gasps> Mine too! What? Yeah. Oh my gosh. So I wrote down all of the chapter names because... That gives you kind of a hint about what she's going to talk about. And I thought that was kind of cool. What was that? <laughs> I don't read that stuff. Oh my gosh, of course you don't. Oh, anyway, so chapter funny. one is called Sailing. And the chapter starts out, it's, it's 2004. And I paid attention to the dates when Bella was talking about them because I thought, I think this is going to be important. So I wrote down all of the dates in my notes and what had happened on each date. Okay, so, time out. Did you find it to be helpful? Yeah, I did, actually. Okay, cool. So it's 2004. She has about 30% hearing left. And she decides she's going to go sailing. Which I thought, oh my gosh, that sounds awful. Even not Even having my hearing, I don't want to go sailing. No. Anyway, she decides to go sailing because she was going to push love and fear away by doing something that frightens her. And she goes sailing and, you know, it just doesn't go very well. One of her hearing aids doesn't work correctly and she just kind of realizes that she puts other people in danger by doing that. Yeah, she has a really good quote on page 10. After they kind of tell the story, she says, It does not occur to me until a very long time later that by failing to explain how bad it has got, talking about her hearing, mm-hmm. I am making life more difficult for everyone else. And she brings that up again later in the book, too. Like, she just wasn't accepting it. And she wasn't talking to anyone about it. And, you know, that sailing escapade, she put that child in danger. Well, and she put all of them in danger because she was too stubborn to say, you're probably going to have to help me out. I can't hear. Right. I was really frustrated and I cannot empathize. I kind of did. I can empathize with it. I can't put myself into that situation. But I did not understand why she could not say hey, this is my hearing, my hearing's not great, you might have to use hand signals or something. Right. And in this chapter, she talks a little bit about, like, acoustics and hearing and kind of how that works in your brain on pages 8 to 9. As humans, we have the universal ability to tune in and out of other people. Like, if I haven't seen a friend for a really long time, I can still, like, hear their voice inside of my head. Mm-hmm. We can tell, like, when someone's fake laughing and the way that, like, certain people say certain words. The quote is, we have the world's most perfectly engineered voice recognition software invisible inside of us. And that's our ears. And I think that kind of puts into perspective of, like, if you can't hear... You don't pick up on that fake laughing, and you're reading people differently than when you can hear them. Yeah, it's just such a change to, like, how much you can perceive Yes, with your hearing, which is not something that I ever even 
realized before because I've been able to hear my whole life. Yes. I liked when she was telling about how she knew that her hearing was deteriorating, but she said, like any good adult, she just ignored the problem. Right, I have that quote. That is so true. Is that in the first chapter? I don't know if it is or not. I don't think so. I don't know, but she's just like, oh yeah, like I did what every good person does is ignored the problem. It was fine. I was fine. I was still functioning, so I could go on. And she tells us how she kind of ended up losing her hearing from what they thought originally. Yeah, chapter two, we learn how like she had these accidents. And chapter two, because I know you're going to ask, is called hearing. Okay. Okay. And she kind of jumps back in time. It's summer of 1998. And she realized something was wrong with her hearing. And that's when she's like, well, I did what any other sensible, evolved adult would do in the same situation. I ignored the problem. (laughs) (laughs) So relatable. And she goes to the eye doctor. The eye eye doctor. She goes to the doctor and... They give her hearing aids, but she she doesn't wear them. I feel so bad for hearing doctors because they have the worst patients. Yes. I don't know that many people that I know of that wear hearing aids. I would say probably 75% of those people refuse to wear their hearing aids or refuse to acknowledge the fact that they have to have hearing aids. Just like she does. She just refuses to wear the hearing aids. And it's just so much different from, like, glasses. People that wear glasses are fine with wearing glasses. It's okay to wear glasses. People that need hearing aids, like, refuse for a really long time. And then they're finally like, fine, I'll wear them. Yeah, and in this section, you kind of learn more of the science behind hearing. So much of the hearing takes place in the part of the body that we can't access, you know, inside your ear that's inside your brain. And I did not know this, but once anything in the inner ear is damaged, it stays damaged. You cannot fix it. Yeah, it's a good reminder to take care of yourself. Yeah, I clean my ears every time I take a shower. We have to be careful with it when you clean baby's ears because you don't want to push the q-tip too far yeah same with mine though yeah it hurts (laughs) i liked i don't know what chapter it's in since we're going chapter by chapter um this could be in chapter three titled to to be told in a minute but she talks about how hearing kind of is about discriminating between important noises and unimportant noises so important noise would be like voices and alarms things that you need and then other noise like any like background movement that you would have and the hard part about hearing aids is that they only help with how loud things get but it's not possible to have that sense of discriminating sounds. Yeah. So you just hear everything all the time. And it's super overwhelming. Yeah. The hearing aids help with the volume, but not with the sense. So it makes sense to me why 
it would be so such a big change and a big like you'd have to get used to wearing the hearing aid the hearing aid guy he told bella that it takes four months of full-time use and wearing of hearing aids for your brain to adjust to the volume and that's he was like you have to wear them all the time in order for them to work yeah (laughs) but they thought well bella thought that She had two accidents, one in 1990 and one in 1997. Not really, really bad accidents, but she thought and the doctors thought that together these two accidents were the reasons why she went deaf until we get to the end of the book. But in 1990, she went on a ski trip and guess what? She fell down. She wasn't wearing a helmet. (laughs) And she slammed her head into a rock and blacked out. Yeah, that's why you don't go skiing. But then she woke up, and I thought this was interesting, that, like, something happened to her conception of 3D time-space. Yeah. And she describes it like she was experiencing two completely separate versions of reality. She hit her head that hard. She hit her head, and she was, like, in her 20s. Yes. She hit her head, and then she was like, I'm fine. Let's keep going. Yes. And then just like, went on with her life like she had not just had this head trauma happen. Yeah. And then in 1997, she was in a car accident. And she just, the car just went off the road in black ice and hit like an embankment or something. Yeah. This was when she started to kind of notice she was going deaf, but she wasn't telling anyone she just started noticing like she couldn't hear certain things and da, 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 chapter three is called aid and this is actually where she talks with steve about the hearing aids oh i know i Sorry. i thought it was in chapter two but it was in chapter three in chapter three they give you all the science behind hearing which at first i was like this is so cool and then i was like i don't get any of this yeah I needed a picture, I think. Yeah. If I had a picture, I could have just, I should have just Googled it, but I have no idea what the ear looks like or any of it, so. Yeah, same. And there is a quote when we were talking about um, the brain distinguishing between like volume and sense and all of that, that says true hearing edits all the time. It judges and discards. So like we kind of hear you know, people say this all the time, like, we hear what we want to hear, but that's kind of our brain. It's telling us what we need and what we don't need. Yes. Do you have any other notes from that section? Um, nope. I do have to tell you that I got gel pens for when I was making this, uh, making my notes on this. So all of my book notes are in black, but then I go back through and I write kind of all the things that I want to talk about and kind of like make extra notes and I use sparkly teal gel pen on that for that part and now there's glitter all over my notes oh my god there's glitter everywhere it's the best thing ever oh for my when I wrote in the book I used those cool pins our brother gave me that have the eraser on them oh the pink one that he uses in his fancy notebook for work and then when I wrote my notes in my notebook, I used classic Papermate Ink Joy gel pen. What color? Pink. Ah, 
color-coded. Yes. And right now I'm using something else just to scribble on. Right now I have a black, big, um, like, round stick pen. Hmm. Um, which doesn't make any sense because I have about 500 writing utensils on the floor of my office. next part and it's chapters four through six. Oh, i did four through seven Ugh. chapter four is called loss and she's really just pretending bella's just pretending like nothing was happening she's fine. like just ignoring the problem like any good millennial would do yep any good adult you're just pretending like you don't need to go to the doctor because yeah. you can't afford it so i can hear i can hear i can hear <laughs> yeah in this one, she talks about how she thought of if you were deaf, this was kind of just like the society's view on being deaf. It just meant that you were stupid and old. And so I think that that is just kind of why she struggled with that is because she was in her 20s. Yeah. And like losing this part of her just made her feel like she was so old. And I think that's why she was in denial for such a long time. And in this part, she details the two categories of hearing loss. There's the deaf, which is about 60,000 people. And then there's the deafened, and that's about 11 million people. Yeah, and it said, just in Britain alone, uh, over 11 million people have some form of hearing loss. Yeah. So that means one in six. That number was a lot more than I thought it was going to be. And there's a group of people called the Action on Hearing Loss, and they estimate that it takes an average of 10 years for someone to actually acknowledge that they have a hearing problem. And I thought, oh, I can see that. And I think you don't notice it right away. It's yeah. over time. You're like, oh, I, I didn't hear it. I can see that bird, and I know it's making noise, but I can't hear it. And I think, too, it's like because you're just so used to your your brain adjusting for those things, you don't have any idea that it's not how it's supposed to be. Right. It's like when kids need glasses, they don't say, hey, I think I need glasses. Exactly. Because they just think that's how it's supposed to be. Well, that's what I thought when I needed glasses. I thought that's just what the world looked like. Yeah. And I mean, I probably needed glasses long before I actually got them. This chapter, they also talk about mental health and deafness on page 53. And they say that depression is four times higher among those with hearing loss. The deafened, it's five times higher. And there's much higher incidence of drug and alcohol abuse, of personality and behavioral disorders, and in some cases, something akin to post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah, and she talks about, this might be in the, the last part in chapter three, um, but she says, your sight gives you the world, but hearing gives you other people. And so I think that if you are deaf or deafened, you're missing that connection to other people. And that's hard. Also, the deafened community doesn't have a lot of support. Right. And so they struggle to function in their social setting because there's just not a support system out there for the people that 
had their hearing but have lost it over time. And in this chapter, Bella meets Jackie Sheldrake. That's not how you say her name. It's Jackie Sheldrake. <laughs> He's an audiologist, and right now it's 2001. And she meets Jackie, and they kind of talk a little bit, and Jackie runs a test on Bella's ears, and she does this for years. So 2001 was the first year she went, but then she went the following years, and that's very important to know. And Jackie gave her new hearing aids. Like, this was just our initial meeting of Jackie. I just like the way she spells her name. Jacques. It's so French. Is this before or after they talk about the brain? That it's coming. And trauma. Yeah, but let's talk about Dr. Austin. Okay, fine. Dr. Austin is a clinical psychologist at the National Deaf Mental Health Service Unit at Birmingham, which, you know, again, we're in Britain, so wherever Birmingham is. (laughs) Don't you mean Alabama? Um, and Bella interviews her and basically asks, was there a common reaction amongst the people she saw? And it says, yes, depression. But then it talks about ordering in a restaurant. You remember this part? No. Dr. Austin can predict, like, what a definite person will order in a restaurant. Like, they will probably order pizza. Because they will order things they can be absolutely sure they know that they're not going to go for anything complex. People losing their hearing lose the variety in their life. They'll go for the safe option. Everything's safe because otherwise it's a hassle. So, say if they ordered steak, they know the waiter's then going to ask them how they like it done. And they're going to order whatever's on the menu that's going to be, like, non-negotiable because they don't want to continue that conversation because they don't, they may not know what is being said. And in the restaurant, they talk about the Muzak. The music or the Muzak? It's, I think it's a Muzak. M-U-Z-A-C. So they talk about it and I did not know what it was. At first, I thought it was just a different way to spell the word music. <laughs> but then I was like, I don't know. This doesn't seem like a very British English thing to like just completely change <laughs> up how to spell music. And then I would not know that. So I Googled it and it is the background music that plays in public places. So you go to a restaurant and they always, always are going to have some kind of like light music going on in the background so it's any background noise well then on top of that you have the chatter from the other people a lot of times restaurants aren't well um lit yeah and they're not well their acoustics aren't good because they want you humans like to like have this thrill the restaurants want you to have to yell and it, it makes it seem like you're having a better time but that just makes it more difficult for the deaf person to hear and then hear the waiter so that's why part of that too plays in it's because of all that background noise now we can talk about hearing and your brain and how that relates to trauma okay 
which is very interesting to me because I have been, and I think we talked about this in another book, I've been doing, I'm going to just pat myself on the back, I've been doing very intense and extensive research about the brain and trauma and adverse childhood experiences and, you know, how how that plays into being an adult. So this part was probably my favorite part of the whole book, to be honest. Yeah, I agree. I really like this part. If I was ever going to go back and get a PhD, I would give something that involved the brain and behavior. That's what I would go and do. Because this is the stuff I just really like this stuff. So there's something called pseudo hypocusis. Mm-hmm. And that is a, I'm probably not saying it right, pseudo-hypocusis. And it is when something traumatic has happened. And they give the example of World War One, and a lot of the soldiers came back and they couldn't hear. And they did tests. They said, your hearing is fine. Like, we don't see any damage. But what happened was because of that trauma, the brain shut off, like, the receptors to the hearing. Yeah. Um, I have in my notes say that the pseudo-hypocusis is not always caused by trauma. Humans want to belong, and some will do anything to be a part of a community. This is just, like, your brain shutting off your hearing. Yeah, and when those soldiers came back and they were doing the hearing tests, like, they would pass their hearing tests fine and they couldn't prove that they had an injury and illness so they just thought it was like oh he's been to war this is just some moral fiber in those particular individuals but what had happened was like your brain stopped receiving and transmitting the sound because of that the soldiers had that traumatic event in world war one Mm-hmm. And so, like, just their brain had adapted to that and just shut it off because it was too stressful for their like, nervous system. Yeah. Because the brain is just the most amazing thing and it can, like, save you from anything, pretty much. Yes. And it goes on to talk about, like, this could happen not just to soldiers. This could be a risk for any victim of trauma. And... When you have a shocking event, you may have temporary deafness. And it may also have been a clever piece of biological prioritization. But it's like, in my mind, the brain is doing that to save you later. Mm -hmm. Like, you don't need to hear those noises right when the trauma is happening. You know, like if you're in a car crash, you may remember... The few seconds around the impact with extraordinary visual clarity, but also an experience completely without sound. To quote the book, it says, At that instant of greatest emergency, the brain is focused in on the senses it most needs, channeling everything away from hearing and into different parts of the body. And I think that happens with children. And we... You know, we both are teachers and we can see children coming and, you know, it may be, you know, you've said something a thousand times and they don't hear it. I think it's their body's response. It's not that they're, not that they're purposely not listening to you. It's just that 
their brain is trying to protect them from something or their brain is conditioned to like they have other senses that they need to take care of hearing is not the number one yes and i think too like if i think about times when my stress level my stress window is almost full i just will stop listening yes yeah i'll stop receiving those outside sounds because like what's happening on the inside of my head is like too much i don't always listen to everything yeah Dr. Austin has said she's had some clients who have, like, deafened themselves. This comes back, this sound thing, and just, like, how powerful sound can be and how much it can affect your psyche mm-hmm. comes back later in the book, and that was, like, one of my favorite parts. So I'm excited to, like, tie this into what happens later in the book. Yeah, and a lot of times this doesn't necessarily go with just hearing but the mind translates people's trauma into a physical ailment because physical ailments are somehow easier to deal with so people might be like well I can't hear I can't hear and it's just you know something that their brain has a coping mechanism yeah (sighs) the human brain yeah so after that she goes on to talk about Beethoven oh Beethoven what an interesting guy. Yeah. That's chapter six. Well, oh, wait. Ch- yeah, chapter five, conduction, which I thought was kind of clever because, you know, conduct. Yeah. And then conduction. Yeah. <laughs> okay. She talks about how she really just should have said, like, just take charge when she was talking to people and just say, like, you know, I can't hear very well, so it'd be really helpful if you could speak clearly. You could face me and don't cover your mouth. That would have set boundaries, it would have set expectations, it would have put people at ease, and she she never did it. And she's like, that would have been so easy. <laughs> like, Yeah, with hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah. <laughs> but remember, you weren't thinking that you were actually deaf. Right, you were pretending like everything was fine, so you don't have to go to the doctor. <laughs> yes. So, she talks about Beethoven several times in here, right? Yeah. I just know that Beethoven really struggled with his deafness, and obviously society did not know a lot about being deaf, and that he was not manageable in his situations. Like, his deafness had overtaken his life, and he had just become, like, mad. Well, and they said Beethoven's deafness only strengthened both of his perceptions. So he had... One perception of being genius, and the other perception of being, like, another and a slob. Mm-hmm. And his deafness just made both of these worse. Like, he was a colossus, but he was unmanageable. He was a prodigy, but he was also an idiot. And so, like, that's what the deafness did to him. And in those days, like, people didn't really know what what was going on with him. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that probably stems from the depression part from not being able to connect with other humans. He might have just been a little bit crazy, too, but... (laughs) I I would agree with that. I, like, at the very end, she tells all about all the visitors that talk about Beethoven, like, all these recounts of people's views about Beethoven, and at the end, she says... And what they saw usually says far more about them than it does about him. 
Yes. And I liked that because that's something that you could just take into your normal life. It doesn't even have to be talking about Beethoven. That brings us to chapter six, titled Rock. Ooh. This chapter has my favorite quote out of the whole book in it. Oh, really? Yeah, this chapter tells us more about musicians and hearing loss in musicians. And a German study put the risk of hearing loss as four times greater among professional musicians than it is for the general public. So I thought that was interesting. And then they make a comment about people going to the club. And they found that 70% of those people who went had experienced ringing in their ears after a night out. And, I mean, I would say that's happened to me before. <laughs> yeah, maybe not like at a, at a club, but, you know, if you go to a bar or if we went to, like, a basketball game or a football game where it was really loud, I would get home and my ears would be ringing. Those KU versus K-State games that we went to when you were in college, like, I'm pretty sure that damaged my hearing for life. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say that. I just, I still remember, remember, like, the feeling of coming home from that experience and just being, like, exhausted. Because they would play, I mean, this place is jam-packed. You are... Shoulder to shoulder, packed like sardines into this Colise basketball coliseum. And people are just screaming for like four hours because you're sitting there before the games. And so you're all screaming at the players anyway because you're playing your rival school. And then they are playing Sandstorm at top decibel during timeouts. And you have... All of your closest friends screaming while you're playing this. And I just remember like, my ears would just be like shut down and body would be exhausted from the sound that would happen at the KU games. I went to K-State. I went to Kansas State. So <laughs> when KU would come to Bramlage, that's what it was like. I've never been to Fog Island. I don't know what it's like to experience a KU home game. Probably very similar. Probably. So you have your quote? Yeah, okay. So my favorite part is they're talking about rock music. Rock was born to be played and heard at a high volume, okay? Mm-hmm. Like, that was the point of it, was it's supposed to be, like, loud, in-your-face music. And it says, on page 80, it says, The Sex Pistols did not write Anarchy in the UK to be heard at the World Health Organization's recommended safe noise level. <laughs> you got that right. Yeah. They did not. The Sex Pistols did not write their rock sounds to be played by yeah. the rules. No way. <laughs> not gonna happen. Oh, I just loved that. It was so funny. In this chapter, they uh, talk about... Um... Is it Giles or Giles? Is well, I said Giles, but I'm also from America, so I have no idea. Okay. Giles Martin is the son of George Martin, who was the Beatles' record producer. And George Martin started losing his hearing a long time ago, like when he was working with the Beatles. So Giles would go with him wherever he went, so then... 
he could help like translate and help during the meetings. I thought this was a really cool part of the book, and I don't want to like say too many details just because like I think everyone should just read it for themselves. But he said, you know, Giles went along with his dad so his dad didn't look like an idiot. He wasn't an idiot. He was just losing his hearing. Yeah, I liked, I think this was my favorite story out of all of them. I agree. And, like, George didn't ever talk about losing his hearing and he lived to be 90 and his son says, like, you can't find a story anywhere about my dad ever mentioning that he was losing his hearing. It was really hard to, I think, for Bella, too, to get to talk, to get him to talk about it. Mm-hmm. To even, like, get to put it in this book. Because they didn't want people to discredit what he had made because he was deaf. Yeah. Because he, he said, as his son, I was really only there to facilitate the conversation. I wasn't there, like, making any of the music or anything. Right. Yeah, I liked that. Um, I did not like how she wrote that part. Like, I thought it was hard to read because she didn't put it into, like, me, him structure. And that's how a lot of her interviews are written. It was just kind of difficult for me to follow along with it. Like, who's talking and who's not. Yeah, I noticed especially in that one, it was hard to follow. Mm-hmm. And then the next part, uh, this might be a different chapter. No, we gotta talk about how you can tell if a musician is deaf or not. Oh, okay, go ahead. Do you know how to tell? No, I can't remember. Okay, well, you can't tell a musician is deaf by their performances. You would know by their conversation and talking with them. And Pete Townshend of The Who, he's like one of the rare music people to actually come out and say like, I have terrible hearing trouble. It was interesting, too. She did, There's an experiment that says they played the same song. They played one at like a normal level and one at a higher volume. And that humans, they tended to like the one that was at a higher volume, even though it was the exa- exact same song. Just because psychologically we live for the thrill and the excess. Yes. And I thought that was really interesting, too. So I could I could not relate to that. I don't think I live for thrill and excess. I'm just going to be honest with I you. I don't like loud noises, though. I just can't. Yeah, it's a little um, sensory overload. It's too much for me. I can just get grouchy. So can we go on to when they talk about the ships and riveters and workers? Yes, that's chapter seven, right? Yeah, I don't know. I didn't write down the chapters. It is. It is. I remember. Because I was trying to picture this whole thing in my head and it just wasn't working. Chapter 7 is called... Da-da-da-da! Acoustics. And this is where Bella starts concentrating not really on the people, but concentrating on environments. Yeah, because she says acoustics are in everything. Every building, every space that we're in, there's some kind of acoustic element that plays into it. Yeah. And this is what I'm going to say about this chapter. Bella, you used too much information about ships and riveters to say, we've now reached a point where no one should lose their hearing just for doing their job. 
right. <laughs> and I'm going to pat you on the back for that because I agree. But I'm also going to say you could have just said that in like one page and we could have been done. Instead, I've got this weird picture in my head about what this boat looks like. A factory? I don't know. And I think also this was probably a chapter that was most obvious they were in Britain. <laughs> yeah. And not America. Yeah, because you could, did you read the part about when the other ship came in and dumped all the tea into the harbor? The Boston Tea Party? Did you read that part? No, it was while she was on the ship when they were doing the riveting. I mean, yeah, I probably read it, but I probably... No, Mara wasn't in there! Oh. It was the Boston Tea Party! Come on! Gosh. I don't know. In my <laughs> head, this just kind of looked like, like, Whoville? <laughs> <laughs> but with, like, ships, and it's, like, all stacked on top of each other. I don't know. I'm just going to be honest. I just pictured people from, like, the 1920s, it, like, like, cigars hanging out of their mouth, wearing, like, trousers and a white shirt with suspenders on, like, ash-covered, like, working on this ship. I don't know. This it doesn't happen in Kansas. Well, people I, don't work on ships well, in Kansas. I was also probably thinking too, like when we read the ghost map. Yeah, I was kind of thinking about that too, and so how that part of London was set up. But I have no idea if they're even in London in this chapter, so I'm just gonna stop talking. Yeah, you're just like picturing. Can we just? Everyone has cholera. They're all dead. Can we just move on to chapter eight? Fine. This is the third part, I think, for me. So we're going to just go third part. But I can't tell you what chapters are in the third part because I didn't write it down. Yes, I can. I did seven through nine. I did eight through eleven. Yeah. Well... Chapter 8 is called Silence, and this is 2004, and Bella's been losing her hearing for six years, and this chapter it is kind of not, like, sad or bad, it just had more feels, but um, Bella has a quote, and it comes back in chapter 9. It, she's talking about in films and books and newspapers, the world pivots on moments of action. The crash, the diagnosis, the unmasking. But in real life, that's not how it happens. Sometimes it's not the shock of the fight that does the damage. It's the accumulated silence in the time beforehand. Darkness works slowly. And that's kind of how she's feeling in 2004. Like, she doesn't have her full hearing. It's been six years. She just had a lot of shame about being deaf. This chapter, I think it just kind of started getting to her. Like, she's to the age where people were getting married and having kids. And she was at her worst moment when everyone else was at their best. She also, like, pushed people away. This is going to probably be jumping ahead because I don't remember when they talk about this but she had this boyfriend, songtime boyfriend, and they ended up breaking up. Or maybe, like, he, before they broke up, she was like, hey, I'm deaf. 
And he was like, yeah, no shit, Sherlock. We've known that for years because you'll just like not answer yeah. our conversations. So she didn't even really like she had. Yes, she had pushed people away. Like, yes, she should have said something. But she also didn't know that she wasn't hearing them. So I think that that's where that like, trauma, depression of being deaf and deafened comes in. Like you don't really have a sense of belonging because most of your friends can't relate to you. And there's a quote in here that I think applies to a lot of people. And I think a lot of people need to hear this. For a long time, it didn't occur to me to ask for help because when you most need it, you're least able to ask for it. That was Bella in 2004 in this chapter and with that boyfriend. And it was like, I would think that her close friends would see that something wasn't right and be able to say something. But I don't know if she was receptive to to getting help. That kind of ties back to that beginning chapter when she was sailing. And it was just a good reminder that you have to tell people when things are different with you because they can help you, but if they don't know, they can't do anything about it. And this kind of leads into chapter 9, and chapter 9 is called Distortion. So she had found some people that kind of started to help her, you know, and I think she kind of told her friends, like, you know, I'm not really okay right now. And they were like, okay, well, come here. Like, we can give you a hug. And after she did that, things became a lot easier. Then she has a quote that goes back to that darkness moves slowly from the beginning of chapter 8. In chapter 9, she said, I found people who gave me the tools I needed to reconstruct myself. If darkness worked slowly, then love, it turned out, worked at the speed of light. That's so true. You know, the moment you approach something with love and joy, it goes so much faster. Everything goes so much better. And if you go in with that mindset, as opposed to like, this is awful. I don't like this. I'm not in a good place. It moves very slowly and it just kind of creeps over you and it changes your brain. But, you know, that love makes it go fast. It's the light. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's all about choosing your own weather. Yeah. We talked about that last time. And I think, too, what all humans want is just some sense of belonging and understanding. So Bella was doing this without even realizing it, but she had pushed all those people away. And then when she said, I need help, they could kind of like circle their wagons around her and say, like, we're here for you, even though we might not know what you're going through. Yeah. Like, that was her group that she belonged to. Yeah. Is this a chapter that they talk about? They talk to the um, head of the army and, like, armed forces in, in the British in England? Yes. Okay, I lied earlier. I think I told you some other part was one of my favorite parts. The Giles Martin, George Martin interview, I really liked that. And I really liked this interview with this special forces. Was he the one they changed the name? Yep. He talked about how if you were a good soldier, you were going to fake that you could hear on your hearing test. 
Because you're hearing, just because of all of the loud parts of being a soldier, the bombs, the planes, all of it, it just affected your hearing so much. But if you were a good soldier, you could fake the test results to make it look like you weren't deaf. And I thought that was interesting. He talked a lot about how noise affects the body and your your mental state and how he knew of a torture technique that they would just play sound or play the same rock song over and over again just at the highest level or like even just white noise and that was like one of the most effective interrogation things yeah i wouldn't say torture but that was like one of the most effective effective ways to get people to tell the information was by hitting them with the sound 24 hours a day. Yeah. And I was just like, holy moly, that's crazy. But then I thought about it and there's a, not all police departments and like police forces have this, but I think in bigger cities they do. There's a certain decibel that if you play it, it makes the human body like stop you can't move and so if there's like a large protest or a lot of people they like shoot this that decibel sound out and it just like incapacitates everybody like you can't move really yeah isn't that crazy but i liked when they talked about how guns and explosives affect your body and she asked in the book his name's oliver hadley but they changed it. She asked him, oh, how much dynamite did you know how to use? How much explosives did you know how to use? And he looked at her and he was like, we used the P formula. And she was like, what is that? (laughs) Oh, P is plenty. Like we just use plenty. (laughs) We used what we thought we needed and then some. Whatever, there's no scientific method. It was the P formula. Mm -hmm. I thought that was really funny. These last few chapters, I don't have a whole bunch of notes on. Pretty much after this, this, um, like army story of how explosives and just noise can affect your body and your mental state. After that, I kind of just like trailed off. Yeah. I guess we could skip to chapter 10. Yeah. Chapter 10 is sign. At the very end of the sign chapter, There's a quote that says, The difference between deaf and deafened is that for the deaf there is no lack, no loss. There's always just the world as it is, complete. Yes. The point she was kind of making throughout the whole book was, if you had your hearing and lost your hearing, you knew what the difference was. Yes. And there was no way to recreate that emotion. And in this chapter, they also talk about... They she has an interview with Andy Hearn and he was born deaf and he's deaf by genetics. His parents are deaf and his grandparents are deaf. His children are not deaf. They did not inherit that gene. But he says like they call him they call themselves deafies and the deafies are very nosy and 
Sometimes the police are called to disperse the deafies because they can't hear and they don't know, like, <laughs> something's going on. So, like, people will call the police on them. Anyway, when he goes to the airport, he gets, he's gotten stopped several times going through security. And he says it's because, like, it's just how he holds himself. He's gotten pulled over, you know. It's just, like, his behavior changes. Mm -hmm. What the police and security are looking for are someone who holds themselves kind of like a deaf person, like, just super aware. And they call it, like, 3D comprehending about what's going on around them because they can't hear anything, but they know exactly what's going on because they're reading body cues and they're reading people's lit. I don't know. It was just interesting and just kind of sad too that they just pick on those people <laughs> yeah so my part four starts at chapter 11 and moves on until the very end okay so that's where that's where i kind of am chapter 11 is called vision which was weird because we're reading a book about sound. I know. How weird is that? Oh, yeah. This is a chapter where they she kind of gives the example of 3D comprehension. Where, like, she couldn't hear a thing, but she was having no difficulty understanding every word. She's like watching someone at the bus stop or train station or something. Do you have any notes from this chapter? Um, I have a, I have a really vague note that says, Losing hearing means you have to rely on seeing instead of looking. Mm -hmm. And then it just says somewhere in chapter 11. So I don't know where that is in chapter 11. <laughs> and I don't know what I was trying to talk about, but I have it written down. So whoops, because I was just reading it again and thought losing hearing means you have to rely on seeing instead <laughs> of looking. And I'm like, I don't. All right, all right, all right. Yeah. Now, the next part that I have notes written down for is the ear surgery part. Oh, we had to back up. We had to go see our friend Jackie again in chapter 12. Oh. Chapter 12 is called Surfacing. And now it's 2009. Bella goes in to see Jackie Sheldrake again for her. That's not how you say it. How do you say it? Sheldrake. <laughs> Jackie Sheldrake. Jackie Sheldrake. <laughs> I like that one video, like, hey, hey, Ron. Hey, hey, yeah. Ron. Jay Quellin. Palake. Yeah. Anyway, it's 2009, and she goes in for her standard audiogram and the adjusting of her hearing aids. But this time... Jackie runs a different test, and she just says, like, you should go to France. France? I said, I think, picking her way across each world with even more care than usual, that what we're looking at here is otosclerosis, or autosclerosis. And, I mean, she, Bella didn't know what that was, so they kind of This was Bella's reaction. What the hell, Jackie? I've been coming to you for years. Yeah. So they talk about the different kinds of hearing loss and what, you know, what Bella has had. But the 
autosclerosis is a condition of the middle ear and not the inner. So, like, bone has built up around the stapes, the stops. I don't know how you say it. So, Jackie did a series of tests that tested other things, and that's how she came to this. Be- I don't, I don't even know how to explain it. You should just read it, okay? Um, <laughs> but if you go to France, you can have a surgery that could possibly correct it. Basically, they shave that bone off, right? Yeah, it was overgrowth of bone on her one of her ear parts. Yeah, like the part that filtered sound or something. So then they just shaped that down. Yeah. But the thing about ear surgery is that it's really scary. Yes. And it's not a guarantee that the surgery would fix the hearing. But, you know, Bella goes home and basically WebMDs this and writes down everything about it. (laughs) Yeah. And decides to go for it. Yes. So she gets the surgery... Can we talk about the surgery for a second? Yeah. Okay, this is the surgery. Because this is the one note that I have. So, hold your horses. Okay. The surgery is on the ear. Well, the ear is like one of the smallest parts of your body. Not to mention, it's inside your brain. Okay? Yeah. So, there's only one way that you can go in. That's through the ear canal. Once you've gone through the ear canal and by the eardrum... There's a deep chamber of secrets. Shout out to Harry Potter. The chamber of secrets. The name for this inner ear is a labyrinth. So basically, it's just a maze inside of your inner ear. Your cochlea looks like a snail. So you have the coil for hearing, and then there's three little balance canals. And wrapped around, like right through all of that, is a facial nerve. And then next to that facial nerve are the stoppies, the incus, and the malus. And then there's the eardrum. And if you go too far in the wrong direction while you're drilling in on your ear, then you could hit your carotid artery that comes from your heart to your neck to your brain. And if you go too far into your carotid artery, then the patient's going to die on the table. And then just behind the carotid artery is the top of your jugular vein. And all of this is like within three centimeters of each other. Terrifying. So that's your ear surgeon right there. If you are off by a centimeter, you could bleed out because I hit your jugular vein. Or I could do it right and not sneeze and you'll be fine. Yeah. It's scary. The ear ear surgery is scary. Like one of the most precise surgeries she could perform. Okay, move on, move on. Okay, okay. So she gets one ear done, right? One ear at a time has to be done. Yep. The first ear did not go as planned. She doesn't really recover well. And something's not right. And the doctor says that. The doctor's like, this is not the results we wanted. And he was mad. The doctor's mad at himself because he doesn't mess up and it looks as if he's messed up. So he makes her stay for a few more days. She goes back to London and, like, time passes. You know, Christmas, New Year, it's the middle of January. She noticed a change and she could hear in her left ear again. 
And it was like, she questions herself, was her ear healing itself? And that's essentially what happened, right? Yeah, it was just kind of like one day she woke up and her balance was off. Yeah. And then one day it just kind of like shifted just right and then it was fine. I just felt so bad for the doctor because he was he was so sorry. He felt so bad. Well, and that, there was nothing that they could they could not have predicted that that was going to happen to her because they said this was a routine surgery of this kind. So it was like kind of weird that it that it happened to her anyway. Yeah. But then she goes back for the other ear. Yeah. And you know what? It's fine. It's fine. That that one, like, the second ear, no problems, right? She could tell instantly that it was different than the last time. Then she goes back to Jackie. Mm-hmm. And then Jackie runs her tests, and she's like, wow, that's fabulous. That's awesome. And it turns out those head injuries from the skiing accident and the car accident were red herrings. They had nothing to do with her hearing loss. Yeah, it just was something that happened to her. Yeah. That was kind of crazy at the end. Yeah. That she could go for so long. I mean, that was like 20 years, almost, that she had gone for so long, and they thought it was one thing, and then it ended up being another thing. And then that goes into chapter 13, which is called Listening. And I just have one note from this chapter. When the second ear had fully healed... I also discovered I was no longer tired all the time because my brain was no longer working at full capacity to filter and process sound. Whole holds of internal storage space seemed suddenly to have become free. I didn't need nine hours of sleep a night, and I no longer slept like I'd been hit. And if I was woken by car alarms or drills, well, that seemed like a fair exchange to me. My note is when she talks about Tony Parker... And this is kind of hard. I had to go back and look at what who Tony Parker was because this was kind of at the point where it was just getting kind of like blah-ish for me. Mm-hmm. But Tony Parker was basically just like, we're going to need to listen to each other, mental health-wise. Mm-hmm. On page 197, it says, so who is doing what Tony Parker did now? Who is listening with an open heart and no agenda? And I said... Let's all do the Tony Parker and listen to each other with open hearts and no agendas. Mm-hmm. That's the part. That's what I liked about that chapter. I was like, just listen. Don't have any personal gain from it. Just connect with a human. Just listen. Then it's the last chapter. Chapter 14, titled Music. I have no notes from this chapter. Same. It was just kind of a, just a conclusion, you know. She just wanted to listen to music. Yeah. I don't know. She just wrapped things up, I guess. Yeah. That's the book. Yeah, that's the book. I have that, like, a big part of this book was, these were my notes after I had read, and kind of what I thought the big idea was, the impact of your sound and your hearing on your emotions and your mental function. Yes. And I think that, That would be why I would say everybody needs to read this book is that emotional, mental health piece of your hearing. So then you can take care of your ears 
so you don't lose that. Okay, well, a couple of episodes ago, I gave you homework, and I said, you need to come prepared with two book discussion questions. And I let it go last time, because you probably didn't do it last time. No. But did you do it this time? No. Okay, well, I did. So can we talk about my questions? Sure. If you could hear this story from another point of view, who would you choose? Inside of the story, if you could hear their point of view, which character would you choose? Um, probably, I would say Andy Hearn, who was deaf by genetics. Mm. Or the Giles guy. <laughs> that too. I would pick Giles Martin, because that would be a cool story to see, like, the evolution of that since he was so young when his dad lost his hearing. Yeah. Well, are you ready to choose the next book? Yes, my favorite part. All right. Do you want to give this a drum roll? Do you want to be a snowman? Oh! Okay. Drum roll. Ready? Okay. Yep. Okay, our next book is, this is going to be for our next season, season two. It is Rocketman, the daring odyssey of Apollo 8 and the astronauts who made man's first journey to the moon by Robert Curson. Are you serious right now? Yes. Yes, I can't wait to read this book. I know if you I could, it. I know it was. <laughs> <laughs> if you could tell by the excitement level on both of us right now, so, who would you guess picked it? Let me just tell you the top two reasons why I chose this book. Number one, it takes place. No, let me tell. Let me tell. <sighs> Fine. Number one, it happens in 1968. Yes. And number two, it's about the Apollo missions. Yes. Was I right? Not astronauts. <laughs> yep. Yep, I got it. I knew. I knew why you picked it. Mm. It's like we're related or something. Yeah, it's like every book that you read is either about Nazi Germany or <laughs> 1968. So. That's a lie. I've read a memoir about sound. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you read that one about cholera in 1850. Yeah. <laughs> I am... Um, do you want to read the, the summary for, for us? Yes, I'd love to. In early 1968, the Apollo program was on shaky footing. President Kennedy's end-of-decade deadline to put a man on the moon was in jeopardy, and the Soviets were threatening to pull ahead in the space race. By August 1968, with its back against the wall, NASA decided to scrap its usual methodical approach and shoot for the heavens, which is four months to prepare a fraction of the normal time, the agency would send the first men in history to the moon. In a year of historic violence and discord, the Tet Offensive, the assassinations of Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy, the Chicago DNC riots, the Apollo 8 mission was the boldest test of what America could do. 
with a focus on astronauts Frank Borman, Jim Lovell, and Bill Anders, and their wives and children, this is a vivid, gripping, and you-are-there narrative that shows anew the epic danger involved and the singular bravery it took for man to leave Earth for the first time and to arrive at a new world. This, this, I just looked and this was published in 2018. <gasps> yeah, call it back. So, I uh, don't know, all I know is about Apollo 13 and Apollo 11. So, I'm excited to learn more about, I didn't even know there were any other Apollo missions. Uh, Apollo 1 so, blew up on the launch pad. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know about that. So. Yeah, I do know that because I read the Astronauts Wives Club. Oh. I didn't read that one. So. Oh, that's ugh. I should maybe I should read it after I read this one. Yes, you should learn some more. It's really good. I'll send it to you. Okay, mail it to me. All right. Well, that's it for this episode of KPRB. Be sure to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Bye. We'll see you next time. Bye bye. Bye bye. KPRB is created and hosted by Lexi Pusty and Mara Coster. It is edited and produced by Lexi Pusty. Music is by Young Carts.